if you will, please open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 14. You may have noticed that we'll actually cover two passages, Mark 14, and then we'll go back to a passage in Mark 12, but we will begin with chapter 14. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you, how is your friendship with Jesus going? I heard a friend of mine ask that question once. I was a little bit surprised. I hadn't heard anybody put it quite like that before. But then he went on to explain his reasoning, and it made a lot of sense. He said how our life can be quite difficult at times. And if our goal is simply that we would have comfort and ease, well, we'll be in for some huge disappointment. However, if we have a friendship with Jesus, if we know Jesus in a real way, then, then there's hope. Not because Jesus will come in and you know, transform, wave a magic wand, and, and make everything great, but because in and through whatever difficulties we're facing, we will know the one who is supremely valuable. We will know him. We will feel ourselves being loved by him and love him in return. And that, friends, will make all the difference in the world. Well, I've hung on to what my friend said, and it's It's made a lot of sense to me. And maybe you are walking through some difficult times right now. How is your friendship with Jesus? I know for many of us, and myself included, it's very easy at times for our Christian life just to boil down to rules or principles or ideas or theologies or concepts. And friends, please understand, all of those have their place. Please hear me loud and clear. God's objective word must be foundational for our lives. We should be, as I said last week, thinking Christians and should should not just receive anything that comes out to us. Your church family, those who are gathered here with you this morning, uh, should be an essential part of your discipleship. All that is true. But at the center of everything, you know, the hub that holds it all together is the person of Jesus Christ. The person of Christ. We must love him, worship him, and enjoy him. You see, if if Jesus as a person is not at the center of everything, then at some point you're going to run into trouble because your life will get difficult and then all you will have to fall back on our rules and principles and concepts, and you will feel empty. And you'll say Christianity doesn't work. But in truth, you've never tried Christianity. You've tried a a man-made religion, a religion without Christ. I came across some questions that helped me think about this a little bit more deeply this week. I'll, I'll give them to you. I think they're helpful. Here they are. Listen, have we formed the holy habit of contemplating Jesus in solitude, allowing scripture passage after scripture passage to show us Christ's many-sided glory and to draw out of us our many-angled praise? Do we cultivate awe in the presence of the one who calls us brothers and sisters and who once took the place of each one of us under the unimaginably horrific reality of God's wrath for our sins? And do we often make it a point of telling ourselves and telling him how lost we would be without him? Or 
are our minds as Christians often on other things? I think those are good questions. They come from author J.I. Packer in a foreword to a book he, that somebody wrote called Knowing Christ. I'll send them out in the email that I send out every, every week. Steve or I send out every week so you can meditate on them more. But, but I think those questions boil down to this. Do we know Jesus for who he really is? And our, are our lives increasingly shaped by our relationship with him? Well, to help us answer those questions and to lead us into a better relationship with Jesus, let's turn our attention to Mark chapter 14. And I think this passage will illustrate for us what it means to really know Jesus, and it will show us why he is worth knowing. Mark chapter 14, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Now it was two days before the Passover and the feast of the unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he, this is Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of pure ointment, nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would use it to illuminate for us the glories of Christ, cause us to see him as beautiful, as precious. Lord, help us to know him better, to know you better through him. And Father, we pray that our lives would reflect that in everything we do. Cause us as a church to know him together, together to grow deeper in our knowledge and experience of him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think to best benefit from this passage, I need to explain a little bit about its structure to you. It's easy to understand. This passage is a classic example of what New Testament scholars call a Markian sandwich, a Mark sandwich. It's when you have two of the same kind of things on the top or the bottom or the bookends, depending on which you know, way you want to uh, arrange it, and, and then you have something different on the inside. You have a contrasting concept on the inside as you do the, uh, the top and the bottom. And that's exactly what we see going on here. Verses 1 and 2, look at that there, is all about the plot to get rid of Jesus. We see that opposition to Jesus has been mounting. It's increasing. They're no longer content just to sort of deal with him later. They want to uh, get rid of him now. And they have to do it by stealth, secretly, because of the crowds. They're not going to wait till the crowd dies down. They're going to get rid of him now. They're going to do it secretly. And it's clear what they want to do. They want to kill him. 
And friends, just don't run over that too quickly. Let that sink in. This is tragic and this is sad. Jesus is the light of the world. He has come down. He is good and he does good. And yet the religious leaders, the religious leaders, those who are known as being morally good people, want to secretly kill him. I think it's obvious they know they're doing something wrong. I mean, if he was, if he was a false prophet and, and that was obvious, well, they, they would just you know, kill him publicly as part of their, their, their job. But no, they want to do it secretly because they're really interested in holding on to their power. Well, that's verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 to 9, we get this wonderful story of the woman who I think models what I said earlier about a loving relationship with Jesus. She pours the most valuable thing in her possession, this flask of ointment. It would have been an heirloom. It, it probably is worth about a year's wage. Uh, 300 denarii is the value that the uh, people around her assign it. One denarius is a day's wage, so 300, almost a year's wage. Think of how expensive that would be, how valuable that would be. And she, in seconds, spends it all by pouring it on Jesus' head. And, And she here is in the middle of the sandwich, which is Mark's way of drawing attention to her. She's the focal point. She's on center stage because of how she points to Jesus. And then verses three to, I'm sorry, verses 10 and 11, we go back again to the religious leaders. See, the sandwich has the same thing on the top and the bottom. And now we're back to the religious leaders and their plan for how to secretly get rid of Jesus is being fulfilled in a very perverse sense of an answer to a prayer. Uh, Judas comes and he's willing to betray them betray Jesus to them. So that's how they're going to get rid of Jesus secretly. Judas is their trick. So so you see the sandwich here there? Uh, You have secret, deceptive betrayal on the the outside, opposition to Jesus on the outside, and then you have this open, public display of love and devotion to Jesus on the inside. And and the sandwich here is, is pointing to, Mark is pointing to Jesus and saying, Here's the key, or pointing to the woman. Here's the key to understanding what it really means to know this Savior. Now, a lot of stuff we could talk about from this passage. I want to talk about two things about our relationship with Jesus that I think will be very helpful for us. One, we'll talk about the kind of relationship that we have with Jesus. And two, we'll talk about what we give him in the relationship. That's the outline, the kind of relationship we have with Jesus, what we give him in the relationship, I think that'll be clear as I go along. But just think about it. For any relationship to work, you need to know the answer to those questions. I mean, what kind of relationship is this? Is it one of equality? Is there a superior? You know, what's the dynamic here? We need to understand that if we're going to relate to somebody. And two, okay, what is my part then? What do I give? What do I do? And because we're talking about the relationship with Jesus, friends, realize this is very important. This is the most important relationship you have in your lives. Please heed this text. Listen carefully. Okay, so what kind of relationship do we see uh, with Jesus here? Well, I think the best way to jump in here is uh, for me to tell you how I came to a particular insight into this passage. Um, When I'm preparing sermons, it's, it's always a joy, and I like to read 
different perspectives on the text. The Bible is a very popular book, and people from all kinds of people comment on it. And while preparing this sermon, I stumbled upon a feminist theological journal. Yeah, there's something out there that, that, that is that. And, and they had an article on this passage. And interestingly, they interpreted what's going on here as sexism because according to them, um, Jesus, well, rather, the woman is entirely defined and interpreted by Jesus, the man. Let me show you what I mean here. Glance back at the story, verses 3 to 9. Do you see the woman speak any words here? No, she doesn't say anything. Do you see any of her inner thoughts? No. She's doing this incredible act. I mean, spending a year's wage just like that. But she doesn't interpret what she's done at all. She doesn't assign any meaning to it. Jesus is the one who assigns the meaning to it. This woman's story is going to be told throughout the whole world. Pretty incredible, isn't it? But it's going to be told through Jesus' perspective. Now, please understand, I don't think for a minute that, that Jesus is being demeaning to this woman in any way. Actually, what we have here is quite the opposite. We could talk a lot about that. But I think it is an important observation to consider here. Why is it that Jesus is the one who attributes meaning to her actions? Why is it that Jesus interprets what, everything that is going on here? Well, I think it's not at all because she's a woman. I think it's entirely because he is Jesus. And he's, he's Jesus, right? He's the one who's the king. He's God. You know, a major theme in the book of Mark is that this, this Jesus who's walking around looks to the, the, the eye like a normal, ordinary person is actually anything but that. He is, he is God. The gospel opens up by saying the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And when Jesus dies on the cross, the end of the book, another bookend here, sandwich, uh, the Roman soldier says, surely this man is the son of God. Yes, he's, he's with us. Jesus is with us. Jesus is, in, in many ways, profoundly one of us. But he's much more than that, too. He's God. He's the Lord. And by virtue of that fact, he has the right to interpret every single one of our actions. He's got the right to define and give meaning to everything we do. The same dynamic would be in play if Jesus were talking to a man or a woman. Rich or poor, young or old, powerful or weak, because he's Jesus. Friends, this passage shows, when we look at the interaction with the woman, that coming into a relationship with Jesus means coming into a relationship with the one who has exclusive rights to give the authoritative interpretation of our lives. He is the one who assigns meaning to all our actions. Our identity is in every way defined by how we relate to him. Interestingly, we see kind of the same dynamic going on with Judas here, but in in completely the opposite way. How does Judas get remembered throughout all of history? As the one who betrays Jesus, right? That's his identity. He's the guy who betrayed Jesus. He gets remembered throughout all of history through Jesus' eyes. And what gets remembered about him is how he relates to Jesus. We have two characters in this story, two main ones, uh, other than Jesus, right? He's the central character in the whole Bible. Uh, 
but two characters other than that, we have one is vindicated, right, the woman, and the other character is condemned, at least implicitly condemned. Later he'll be explicitly condemned, Judas. And they are vindicated or condemned based on, or by Jesus, based on how they relate to Jesus. Because at the end of the day, what matters most about who you are is how you relate to Jesus. And friends, so we need to turn this on to ourselves, not just analyze these characters in Scripture. We need to look at our own lives. Friends, Jesus will give the authoritative interpretation of your life. And it's not going to be at all based on how much money we make or, or how our children turn out or what our education status is or the number of friends we have. No, his interpretation of our lives, the meaning that he assigns to our lives, will be based on how we relate to him. Friends, meditating on this passage led me to a couple of helpful considerations. I asked myself, what kind of meaning would Jesus assign to my actions? What kind of meaning would Jesus assign to your actions? Do a thought experiment with me. Imagine Jesus is writing the biography of your life through the interpretive grid of how we relate to him. Friends, how would Jesus uh, understand the last argument you had? The last time you got angry? How would he interpret the last time you lied? Or did something loving? What meaning would Jesus assign to, to the things in your life that you think have a lot of meaning? Well, this passage also led me to ask the question, if Jesus is the one who interprets my life so definitively, why do I still care what others think of me? And consider again what we see in this passage. The woman does one thing, and then there are two very different interpretations of what she did. There's the one according to the world, which sadly is probably made up by the disciples here. And and they see that what she did was wasteful, and they scold her. But then Jesus sees what she did as beautiful, and he rewards her. Two very different interpretations. Only one of them matters, really. Friends, when you do something, there's probably as many different interpretations as there are people around you. And sometimes they talk. And sometimes they put what they talk about on Facebook. Young people especially have that going on. Friends, only one interpretation really matters. Maybe you're here this morning and you're the kind of person who's ruled by the opinions of others. Maybe you've been distracted ten times throughout this morning uh, by what, people, what you think people are thinking of you. Friends, if that's you, I plead with you. Consider the truth that is in this passage. Consider Jesus' decisive interpretation. Consider how he, he just overthrows and overrules whatever anybody else is saying about this woman here. Friends, pray earnestly that what Jesus thinks of you will matter much more and what others think of you will matter much less. Okay, so what do we see about the kind of relationship that Jesus has with this woman? Well, we see adoration, we see love, we see a real relationship, but we see that they're not equals. Jesus is clearly the superior, not because she's a woman, but because he is Jesus. Being with Jesus, being in a relationship with Jesus means relating to the one whose opinion matters most of all. 
We must therefore relate to him in a distinctive way. We must give him exclusive honor. We must welcome his interpretation of our lives. We must not resist it. We will get nowhere in life if we resist his interpretation. We must welcome it. Okay, now that we've talked a bit about the nature of our relationship with Jesus, the second thing we want to look here is what do we give him in our relationship? Okay, what's our role in this incredible relationship we have? Well, and let me just give you the quick answer in case you're prone to have your mind wander in the next few minutes, thinking about what others are thinking of you. We, we respond to Jesus by giving him personal honor, by, by adoring him, by worshiping him. The emphasis there is on him as a person. And that's the fitting response to who Jesus is. It's a beautiful response to who Jesus is. Let's zero in, to understand this, let's zero in on how Jesus interprets what this woman does. Look there in verse 6. She has done a beautiful thing. The title of this message is, I believe, What God Considers Beautiful. It was actually Israel Felix's uh, title. He came up with that. If you read the passage ahead of time and you think of a cool title for, the, for, the mess, for, a, for a passage, send it to me, right? If we understand why Jesus considers this beautiful, I think it'll help us understand what we ought to give him. Why does Jesus consider this thing beautiful? Well, first it's helpful to know, uh, what what does he mean by this word beautiful? Well, the, the Greek word here for beautiful is a little bit broader than our word for beautiful. I mean, we can kind of use it to mean pretty or maybe beauty on the outside. But this word... Uh, is kind of like if there was one word for the good, the true, and the beautiful all rolled into one. You know that Greek concept of good, true, and beautiful? This word sort of uh, summarizes all of them right there. So when Jesus is saying that this woman's action is beautiful, this thing is beautiful, he is saying that what she has done is rightly ordered, harmonious. It conforms to the, the true nature of reality. It gets what's really important. He's not simply saying here, it's pretty obvious by the word beautiful, he's not simply saying that her action was morally permissible, you know, allowed, not against the law. No, he's, he's saying it, it fits with the world around us, around her, as maybe a, a certain musical thread in a song fits with that song and makes it beautiful. Or, or it, it, it fits with the world around her like the artist's final strokes on the canvas uh, bring completion to the picture and make it beautiful. Her actions are beautiful. They're fitting. They're completing. They're harmonious. But as we've already pointed out, uh, some people around her don't agree, right? And the other people around her uh, basically point out, according to them, they say, oh, her action doesn't fit in the world. No, they're offended by what she does. It appears to them as obscene. Why would she waste this ointment? It would be more fitting with the world, more beautiful, if she were to sell this and give it to the poor. That would be more beautiful. Why do these people in Jesus have such drastic different interpretations about what this woman did? Well, I think the answer is they have very different ways of seeing the world. Beauty is what is fitting with the world. They have different interpretations of her actions because they have very different understandings of the world around them. See, in their world, the way people who, who condemn this woman, in their world, Jesus has far less glory. 
They're looking at the world as a place where the most important thing you can do is help the poor. You know, give things to other people around you. Now, some of you might be kind of worried where this train of thought is going to go. That verse, you will always have the poor, is sometimes quoted by politicians in bad ways. Please understand, first of all, that the Bible actually puts a very, very high value on the poor. Uh, And this passage wouldn't make sense apart from that context. Deuteronomy chapter 15 says, there will never cease to be poor in the land. And listen to the logic here. Therefore, open wide your hand and help those in need. And so the Old Testament there is saying, there will always be poor among you, so help them. It's good to help the poor. However, Jesus is is saying here that he is soon going to depart. And, And showing him unique, exclusive honor is actually more important, is actually more fitting. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh, well, yeah, but can't I show Jesus honor by giving to the poor? Well, yes, you can. And later on, Jesus will say, what you do for the least of these, you do for me. But that's in view of a time when Jesus is not physically present, when Jesus is absent. And then the way we honor Jesus is, yes, by by taking care of others, by caring for his body. That is directly honoring Jesus. But when Jesus is present, when Jesus is standing right there with you in a unique way, well, then a unique way of honoring him is, is giving it directly to him. Later on, Jesus is saying, you can give to the poor, and that will be honoring him. But here, when Jesus is right there, you can give it to him. That's right and fitting on account of how infinitely glorious Jesus is, how valuable Jesus is, and how much he is loved, at least by this woman. This fits with what we talked about in the beginning of this message, about how the Christian life has as its very center the person of Christ. Friends, the Christian life cannot be reduced to the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. It can't be reduced to simply living out your life and being a good person. That's that's good, but that's not the center. The center of the Christian life is a person. It's Jesus Christ. And therefore, giving him a lavish gift just makes sense. That's fitting. That's beautiful. Friends, don't we like to give gifts to people who we dearly love and want to honor, who are special to us? Isn't that a joy? And the more you value the person, the more you want to spend your money, probably more than you actually should spend, to to lavish them with a great gift. And and when you really love somebody, uh, maybe thinking of marriage or, or a close friend, you often find it fun to get them a gift that has no practical value, right? It's just Beautiful. And that's, that bestows a unique sense of honor to the person. A, a husband who buys his wife roses, uh, sure, she, he could have used the money to help pay off the mortgage sooner or fix the car, but buying his wife roses gives, has, has a unique way of honoring her as a person, holding up her as a person and expressing appreciation to her. Well, friends, Jesus is supremely valuable, at least by this woman, he is loved. And therefore, it makes sense for her to, to give up what is her, her savings, her nest egg, to give up this huge amount and just spend it all on Jesus. That's fitting as a way to honor who he is. 
Well, what application can we take from this? How, how do we interpret that into our own lives as we seek to honor this one who we love? Well, the first application is just to ask ourselves, do we see the world in such a way that Christ is supremely valuable? Or do we see the world in such a way that he's not? Have we reduced the Christian life to merely principles or rules or, or good behavior? If, it is a, if our Christian life is just that, principles or rules, good behavior, then it's not ever going to make sense to lavish upon a person this great honor. Does our Christian life has, have at its center Jesus Christ? Do we see him as supremely valuable? Do we love him? Now, all that being said, there's still a sense in which we actually can't directly apply this passage to our lives because Jesus' interpretation of this woman's action is predicated on the fact that there'll be a time when he's going to leave, right? He says, I will not always be there with you. Therefore, in view of that, this time when he's there with them is when that gift is appropriate. And friends, now we're living in the time when Jesus is not that physically present here with us. So I think the best way we can then apply this passage to our lives is to ask the question, do we long then to be with him? I mean, if you love somebody very much and they're gone from you physically, you will still you know, do all you can to talk with them on the phone or, or Skype or FaceTime or, or whatever, uh, send them emails and letters. You'll want to communicate with them and you'll enjoy that communication, but, but you would never be ultimately satisfied with that communication. You'll want them there with you, right? I mean, physical presence is an important part of any relationship, no less so in our relationship with Jesus. If a husband is perfectly content just talking to his wife on the phone, we'd say, well, there's something seriously wrong with their marriage. There needs to be a presence there. Likewise, if we are perfectly content just praying to Jesus, just reading our Bibles, without an inkling of longing to be with him, there's something seriously wrong in our relationship with Jesus. I think of what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians about when Jesus returns. Chapter 4, 17, he says, and then we will always be with the Lord. That's the climax of all that's going to happen. We will be with the Lord. Friends, being with him should excite us. Friends, do you long for the day when he will return and he will take us with him and we will be with him? And then when we finally see him, then we will cast our crowns before him. Then it will be appropriate to to lavish praise and honor on his person. That will be fitting and that will be beautiful. Now, that said, there's still some things we can learn from this passage that do apply more immediately. Notice here how the beauty of this act is associated with Jesus' death. Jesus, she, she anoints him, and then Jesus says that she is preparing his body for burial. Now, I don't think there's any indication, and we don't really know much about this woman's interpretation. That part's not available to us. But I don't think that she necessarily realized that's what she was doing. It's part of the fact that Jesus is the one who, who interprets all her actions. However, Jesus does interpret what she's doing as preparing him for burial. And he says it is a beautiful thing. Think of the juxtaposition there. She is preparing him for burial. He's going to die. He's going to die a criminal's death. 
if he wasn't a criminal's death, then he would have been anointed for burial after he died. Criminal's death means he's not going to be able to be anointed for burial. That's why it's beforehand. He's about to die a criminal's death, and he anoints her, she anoints him beforehand, and he says that's beautiful. So we have cruel death and beauty coming together. Interesting juxtaposition. And that has to do with the fact that God considers it beautiful that his only begotten son takes on human flesh, comes to die on a cross to redeem the people whom he loves from their sin. That's what God considers beautiful. The cross is ugly, but it is also beautiful because it's the supreme expression of love. And we give to, uh, what we give to Christ now is also beautiful insofar as we participate in his death. See, Jesus is really allowing this woman to participate in his death. And let me be clear here. Christ died on the cross for our sins in a special, unique way that we don't participate in. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, please understand that the first way you need to appreciate and receive Christ is what he did for you, and you're you're just the recipient. You're not the participant. You're just the recipient. You believe what he did for you. But then, if you are a Christian, and you do love this one who suffered in your place, realize that it is his love for you that then he allows you to participate in his death, which means suffering with him, that the gospel may advance to all places. Suffering with him, and the suffering that we undergo in our lives, when we know him personally, is suffering in some awesome, strange, but very real way, suffering with him, participating in his sufferings. So so what is our relationship with Christ like? Well, we've seen that he is God. We've seen that he is king. He has the authority to give the final interpretation on everything we do. And he does that based on how we relate to him. And we see that our appropriate response is to honor him personally. To honor him. Not just to do good things, but to love him and respond to him. And we do that by waiting for him to return, looking for him to return, and by sharing in his death, sacrificially, to bring the gospel to all people. Now, I want to conclude by jumping back to Mark 12. If you've been reading through the book of Mark, you'll know that I've skipped this passage twice, actually. It was in the bulletin, prepared to do it, and then, nope, don't see how it fits. We're going to hit it this time. And it presents a very interesting contrast with this woman in in chapter chapter 14. It's not the kind of contrast between uh, this woman and Judas, who are just you know, polar opposites in almost every way. It's rather the kind of contrast where you take two things that are actually very similar, but when you hold them next to each other, then you can detect subtle differences. The woman in, verse, in Mark chapter 12, verse 41, you probably have heard this story, but let me read it anyway, beginning at verse 41. And he sat down, this is Jesus, sitting down, opposite the treasury, and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came in and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, 
This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, friends, how does this compare to what we've just seen in chapter 14? Well, first, how are they similar? Well, both women gave what is for them a large sum of money, right? Even though the the widow's offering would have been very small, nevertheless, it's, it's all she has. It's very significant for her. And Jesus notices both of them, doesn't he? Now, Jesus clearly commends, celebrates the woman in chapter 14, right? She has done a beautiful thing. But here's the question to consider, and I recognize this might be different than how we have understood this passage in the past. However, uh, follow along with me and see what you think. Does Jesus actually commend the woman here in Mark chapter 12, this widow? Does he commend her? I don't think it's very clear that he does. All he points out is that she has given more than anybody else. And verse 44 says, all she had to live on. The the Greek there is a little bit different. It says she gave her whole life. She's putting her whole life in the offering plate. She put in everything. Now, let's understand this passage in its context. Uh, A little while ago that we worked through chapter 12, but if you remember, Jesus has come to the temple, and everything he sees in the temple is just not good. He he had that acted out parable, you remember, about the uh, cursing the fig tree, and then the fig tree dried up, and that was an illustration of the fact that Israel's religion might look good on the outside. Yeah, there's lots of money, big buildings, but rotten to the core on the inside. Jesus turned over the uh, money changers in the, the temple, the court of the Gentiles, and he rebukes and silences all the religious leaders. Remember, they, they're coming after him in waves, trying to trap him. Jesus silences them, and he judges them and shows that they are, have missed the point. Jesus comes to the temple, and nothing in the temple is pleasing to him. Everything is corrupt. And then right before this section about the widow, starting in verse 38, listen to what Jesus says. Beware of the scribes. So this is chapter 12, verse 38. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at the feast and who, pay attention here, devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. And then right after that, we read the part about the widow putting in her whole life into the offering plate. And I think the best way to make sense out of this, and this isn't just my own interpretation, it's a a view that as many of the commentaries, is that this woman putting in her whole life in the offering plate is an example of what Jesus just said about the religious leaders devouring the widow's houses, their, their estates, really. They're taking all they have. You might say, well, wait a minute. How have, the, how have they devoured the widow? Didn't she freely give of her money? Well, she did. But they've constructed this works righteousness system where the Pharisees go around acting you know, miserable, like the more miserable they are, the more pleasing to God they are. They, they walk around with these outward shows of fasting. Be like me and be miserable for the kingdom and you will score more points. And this encourages people, particularly the weak people, to then sacrifice everything they have, 
thinking that they are then being pleasing to God. I heard a story of a TV preacher who, who was telling people, you know, across the airways, if you only have $100 left, don't save it. Send it into my ministry. That's pharisaical legalism. That's destroying people's lives. And friends, people will sacrifice greatly for religion. Some sacrifice their own children. Some live in absolute poverty. Monks go away, away from all people, and devote and, and, and live extremely difficult lives because they think it accrues something for them. Well, friends, think about how uh, the, the woman in Mark 14 is different than the woman here in the widow here in chapter 12. And please, this is in no way condemning the woman in 12. It's seeing her as a victim of the, the legalism that is going on here. Look at the difference, though, between the two women. The, the woman in Mark 14, she sacrifices greatly too, right? She gives a great cost to herself. But at the very center of her sacrifice is the person of Christ. She's not doing it to earn favor. She's not doing it out of a sense of duty. At least it doesn't seem like that. She is lavishing this gift on the Savior who she loves. And that's what makes her gift beautiful. Friends, do you know Jesus in that way? Do you relate to him in that personal way? Do you love him? Do you know him? Do you worship him? Do you enjoy him? Friends, he has come to be known. He has come clothed in his gospel, revealing himself in his love for sinners by dying on the cross to save the likes of all of us. Friends, know him. Let's pray.